Now, as we come to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, we're going to begin this morning about at verse 27. And in Mark 11:27, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's come during the final week of his ministry before his crucifixion and resurrection. And when Jesus came, he came amidst all the worship and praise of the pilgrims streaming into the city of Jerusalem because it was around the time of the Feast of Passover and thousands of Jewish people from all over the region would stream into Jerusalem to be there during this festival time. The crowds were enthusiastic and they enthusiastically worshipped Jesus. There were hosannas and, and, and acclamations given to Jesus as he rode into the city. But when he came into the city... He went out, and on the next day, he went into the temple, and he saw that the temple was being made into a marketplace, the court of the Gentiles on the Temple Mount, the only place where Gentiles could come and pray to God, was being made into something more like a swap meet than a place of prayer and worship, and Jesus drove them out, and he said, my house should be a house of prayer for all nations. You've made it into a den of thieves, because not only was it a swap meet, But it was a rip-off swap meet where people were being cheated and just plain thievery was going on. Well, in the midst of all this, Jesus drove out the money changers. He turned over the temples. He uh, turned over the temple. He couldn't turn over the temple. That's a silly thing to say. He turned over the tables now, didn't he? It's better when I catch these things in myself than you having to catch them on me later. But he turned over the tables of the money changers. He drove them all out. And that's going to cause a stir. And the stir that it caused is noticed here in verse 27. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you the authority to do these things? Jesus showed tremendous courage coming into Jerusalem, boldly entering the city. He was a wanted man, but he didn't care. He made a public entrance. And then he went to the most public place possible, the Temple Mount. And there he made a public display of himself by chasing out the money changers and turning over their tables and driving them out with a whip made of cords. Now, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, those are the religious officials, the denominational leaders, the religious mucky mucks of the day. They're all there and they come to Jesus and they look him square in the eye and they say, Who are you to do this? By what authority are you doing these things? Who do you think you are? It's a great question for today. People ask that question all the time. Now, often we don't ask it actually. We ask it in our mind. It's so much of a part of our thinking that it's like what water is for a fish. It's just our environment. We think it all the time, but we don't think about it. And it's the question simply put, Who are you to tell me what to do? Actually, it's a very good question. You might be asking it right now. I almost guarantee that some of you in this room right now, you're asking it either consciously or unconsciously. As you look at me, you're saying, Preacher, who are you to tell me what to do? Well, let me tell you who I am to tell you what to do. (laughs) I'm nothing. But... As I stand and bring forth before you the word of God, as I bring it before you faithfully, not adding spin to it the way politicians do, not uh, giving an unfaithful exposition of it, as I bring it before you, rightly dividing the word of truth, 
then I stand before you as a representative of God. And if you have a quarrel, you really don't have it with me. You have it with God's word. Now, I am the messenger. But please, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just bringing you the message. And if it's a message from God, if it's a faithful exposition and understanding of what God says in his word, then it's God telling you what to do. And I think we need to wake up to this principle in our culture, in our society today, that God has the right to tell us what to do. That when God says, do this, we should do it. And when God says, don't do this, we shouldn't. This is very foreign to the way we think. The way we think in our culture, by and large, says this. I'll do what I want to do, when I want to do it, as I want to do it, and as often as I want to do it. Now, thankfully, there's a lot of times when what God wants us to do happens to go along with what we want to do. Well, good for God at those times, right? But there's many of us where when God wants to do contradicts with what we want to do, guess who wins out? What we want to do. Do you realize what we do when, we, when we're in that place? We're looking at God and we're saying basically, who are you to tell me what to do? I'll do what I want to do. Let's come back to that most elementary lesson in theology. There's a God enthroned in heaven, and you're not him. He's God. He has divine authority. He can tell us what to do. And as I've looked at my own life in preparation for this morning's message and and just look at things in my life, I see it confronting me. I see areas where the Lord challenges me and looks at my life and say, well, David, you know, why do you continue in this? This isn't what I want you to do. And I said, well, why do I? It's not like I don't understand what God wants for me in the situation, but I see that even my own life, there's something I'm looking at and say, well, Lord, I want to do this and it doesn't really matter to me what you say. Well, this is something God needs to work on in me and in you and in every one of us to recognize and to submit to the authority of God. By what authority are you doing these things? Now, we might have expected that Jesus would have answered that question by saying, by divine authority, and do you got a problem with it? Then he could have called down fire from heaven and just zapped a couple of them and established that authority. But he didn't. Look at how he answers, beginning at verse 29. But Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, let's stop right there. I would almost get annoyed with Jesus at this point because I hate it when I ask people a question and they answer with a question. Doesn't that bug you? It bugs me. Bugs me especially when my kids do it. No, answer the question, I feel like saying. Don't give me another question. Answer the question. I want you to see that Jesus isn't dodging the question. Jesus is actually setting this up in a very fair, in a very right way to expose the problem in these religious leaders' hearts as to why they won't accept his authority. So just because Jesus is answering their question with a question, don't think that Jesus is just dodging their question. Let's remember what it is. By what authority? Okay, well, Jesus continues on. Let's start again at verse 29. But Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one question, then answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. Well, now Jesus puts quite a question before them, doesn't he? Now, John the Baptist had a very well-received ministry. He was popular. People respected him. Even when they didn't agree with him, they respected him as a prophet of God. And John the Baptist had one essential message. 
His message was, Jesus is the Messiah. This man coming after me is God's chosen one. You should receive him and you should submit your life to him. He is the Messiah. And so Jesus says, tell me, is John's ministry from heaven or is it from men? Now you can just see the wheels spinning inside these religious leaders right at that point. They're saying, oh boy, see, here's the problem. If we say that John's ministry was from men, that it wasn't from God, if we say that, first of all, the crowd's not going to like us because they all agree that it was from God. Second of all, we know it's not true. And then they go, well, the other part of it is if we say that John's ministry was from heaven, then Jesus will say, well, why didn't you believe him when he said, I'm the Messiah? Matter of fact, this is exactly what's going on here. Look at verse 31. And they reason among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Well, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, We do not know. These spineless cowards. They knew, didn't they? They knew very well. They just didn't want to give an answer that they thought might give them in trouble. Essence of a politician's frame of thinking. You just deny or say you don't know or this or that. And so Jesus answered and said to them at the end of verse 33 here, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. See, friends... The response that the religious leaders had to the question of Jesus exposed their own hearts. It exposed that they were not sincere seekers of the truth. They didn't really want to know by what authority Jesus did these things. They knew. They wanted Jesus to get himself in trouble with an answer. They wanted to trap Jesus. And Jesus said, you're not going to trap me. You're not sincere seekers of the truth. You're here to score debate points. And I'm not interested in that. They were more interested in scoring points in a debate or in pleasing the crowd than they were about seeking the truth. You know, Jesus received truth seekers warmly. He said, you have questions. You have issues. Come to me. I'll receive you. But insincere people who just wanted to play a game with Jesus, he pushed them away. He didn't have any time. And he said, I won't even speak with you. I don't have any time to speak with you. But then if you notice, if you notice, Jesus is going to tell a story that's going to answer them very well. Look at it here now in Mark chapter 12, verse 1. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent them another servant. And at them, they threw stones, wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another and him they killed and many others beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. You get the scene, the setting for this story that Jesus tells, and it's a made-up story. He said, Let me tell you a parable. I'll give you a story to illustrate what's going on here. He says, imagine a vineyard. 
They're growing grapes. They're making it for wine and for fruit. And there's the vineyard, and it's all set around, and a a landowner comes in, and he establishes the grapevines, and he builds a wine vat, and he makes the barns, and he sets everything up. It's a lot of work and a lot of money to do that, don't you think? Then he says, well, I'm not going to run this. I'll lease it to some people. I'll call in some renters. And these people who rented his vineyard were very bad renters. If you've ever been a landlord or if you know people who have been a landlord, then you've probably had an experience at some time or another with bad renters. It's a nightmare to have bad renters. By the way, might I make the other point too, and I suppose it's a very superficial but a very applicable lesson to draw from this. Maybe you've been a bad renter. Well, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have no business being a bad renter. You should be a good renter. You should respect the property of others. And just because you feel that your landlord, you don't like him very much or whatever, it's still his property and you should treat it well. Don't be a bad renter. Be a good renter. You're a representative of Jesus Christ. Well, again, that's a pretty superficial lesson to draw from this, but it's true nonetheless. These were bad renters. And not only when the time came for the owner of the vineyard to collect the rent, to collect the I mean, it's a fair arrangement, right? He owned the vineyard, he built all the stuff, he put in all the investment, and these people just came in and worked, and they could keep some of it, but some of it they had to give back to the owner. It's a fair arrangement, but they didn't want to abide by it. And when he sent a messenger, they they sent him away and they beat him up. And then he said, well, send another messenger, and they did the same thing. He sent a third, and they killed the third one, and then he sent several more, and some they beat, and some they killed. Finally, the landowner says, well, look, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect my son. Surely they'll, they'll honor him and, and they'll get in line. They'll see how serious I am because I'm sending my son. Don't you think it's interesting that the owners, or excuse me, the renters of the vineyard, they despised the owner, they resented him, and they didn't honor his authority because he wasn't physically present. And they thought, well, you know, he's not physically present. I guess we don't have to worry. I think we don't have to respect him. Isn't that how God is treated by many people? Because God may not be physically present in a room. Oh, he's present. You better believe he's present. But not in a physical, material presence. And I think, well, we don't have to worry about God. Jesus says, no, this this is not the case. Now, Jesus is drawing on an image that's very powerfully used by the Old Testament prophets, especially the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 5, where he paints out a whole picture where the people of God are God's vineyard. And if you want to draw out this whole picture that Jesus is making, it's as if he looks at the people of God, at that time the people of Israel, and he says, Israel is my vineyard, here they are. And the leaders, the rulers, the, the, the heads, the, the authorities in Israel, they're the renters. They're the ones managing the vineyard. And God expects them to manage the vineyard and to do it faithfully and to make a good return unto him. But they're not doing it. Instead, when he sends them messengers, they despise them, they beat them, and sometimes they even kill them. And finally, God says, well, I'm going to send my ultimate messenger to the leaders of the vineyard here, and they had better respect him. But they didn't respect him. As a matter of fact, as Jesus used this whole parable, you knew very well that he knew he was the son, and it would only be a short time until he was crucified by these very leaders. I want you to notice something that's very powerful in this. Again, it's just another very general principle in this parable. It's that the vineyard did not belong to the renters. 
Sometimes leaders and authorities and, and, and people who have positions of authority in God's church need to remember that. It's not their church. It's Jesus' church. They're just managing it for him. Oh, yes, there's a place for legitimate leadership, for, for legitimate authority and the exercise of it in the church, but never should it be done with the thinking on the part of the authority that the church belongs to him. It belongs to Jesus Christ, and it's him that he answers to. That's something you can pray about for me here. I always want to remember. I never want to forget that. I always want that to be foremost in my mind, that it's Jesus' church. And so then, whatever success that the church has, Jesus, it's your success. And might I say, whatever problem the church has, Jesus, it's your problem. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to fret. It's your church, Jesus. And you will not let it fall. You will not let it be defeated. You have a purpose, you have a goal, you have a strategy for your church. Lead it, Lord, and show me what to do in that. You need to pray for me, your pastor, and and the leadership of the church towards that end. But You see, the elders and the leaders of Israel, they forgot it. And finally, the son came, and do you see their foolishness here? Look at their their talk, it's madness here. Verse 7, but those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. That's madness. Oh, we'll kill the son, and then the owner won't care anymore. What are they thinking? Kill the son, and they're going to enrage the owner. Kill the son, and they're going to make themselves liable to judgment. But I want you to notice something else, that the son was the final messenger. There would be no other. Either they would accept the message of the son, or they would face certain judgment. Friends, that's how it is in the Christian life. Jesus Christ is God's final messenger. He's the one. You look to him. There's not going to be another savior. There's not going to be anybody else coming down the pike. He's the final messenger. You either accept or reject him. Charles Spurgeon said at this point, he said, if you do not hear the well-beloved son of God, you have refused your last hope. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one else can be sent. Heaven itself contains no further messenger. If Christ be rejected, hope is rejected. So here he is, the final messenger came and they killed him. And notice here what the owner will do, beginning at verse 9. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went their way. The the owners, or the, excuse me, the renters of the, the vineyard were so foolish to think that if they only killed the owner's son, then the vineyard would be theirs. But Jesus draws the correct point. You kill the owner's son, and judgment is sure to come. And everybody knew what the parable meant. Jesus was the son. They were the renters of the vineyard, and God's judgment was coming upon them. If you notice there in verse 12, it says that they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. They knew it. And yet, what did they say? They were cut to the heart. They were convicted by the Holy Spirit. But they reacted to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, not by repenting, but by rejecting. They said, well, here it is. We, Jesus says he's the son of God and that we're out to get him and that we're judged, liable under judgment. So what do we do? Well, we have to kill this man. That was the reaction. You know, it's a, it's a, 
strange thing to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what I'm talking about? When the Holy Spirit shines his searchlight upon your heart and nails you. I know oftentimes the Holy Spirit does as we come together here to study the word. I have had people say to me after church on a Sunday, perhaps out in the lobby, who told you about me? Did you talk to my wife? They really wonder if perhaps I haven't had some spies out after them. And I decided, you know, to sort of uh, sharpen the arrow and point it right at them in the message. I want you to know that I don't do that. I never do that. I never preach to individual people a point that I am afraid to make to their face, you know, in one-on-one conversation. That's cowardice. That's hiding behind the pulpit. If you want to say something to an individual, you'd say it to them as an individual. But then again, if the shoe fits, wear it. If the word of God speaks your heart and says, well, this is for you, then you need to wear it. And that was the issue going on here with these With these men, they knew it. They knew that he had spoken the parable against them, but they didn't repent. Instead, what did they do? Well, they tried to to trap Jesus. Look at it here now in verse 13. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Oh, please. You can see through this, can't you? The old buttering up before the kill. They're trying to leave a trail of breadcrumbs that Jesus will follow right into the trap. Oh, Jesus, you're so smart. You're so wonderful. You're so good. Well, you don't listen to the way of men at all. It's all God. And so they're trying to catch Jesus in his words. They're trying to put him into a trap, and they use flattery to do it. Of course, Jesus knew well enough not to regard this flattery from men. Sometimes our enemies flatter us because they want to set us up in a vulnerable position and hurt us. Sometimes our friends flatter us because they think that's what we want, or they're being kind, or they're being helpful. Let me put it to you plainly. Either way, it's a mistake to put too much stock into what other people say about us, either good or bad. I'll lay it right out on line for you. Those people that praise you and flatter you, they're just as much mistaken as your harshest critics. You're really somewhere in the middle there, aren't you? You're not as good as all the flatterers say about you, and you're not as bad as all the harshest critics say about you. Those who praise us are probably just as much mistaken as those who abuse us. And Jesus knew this. He wasn't going to regard this flattery. Instead, they get right to the point, and they ask their their entrapping question here, and it's right there at the end of verse 14 and into verse 15 where they say, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Now, since the year 6 AD, the Jewish people living in Judea were forced to pay taxes directly into the emperor's treasury. Now, some Jewish patriots hated this so much that they refused, and they became, uh, you know, tax fugitives, and they were uh, under penalty of Roman law and convicted on these counts. And the reason why was not just because they hated paying taxes. We all hate paying taxes. 
But the real issue was they felt if we pay taxes directly to the Roman government, we're recognizing their rule over us as legitimate. And there is no legitimate Roman government over us. We're Jewish people. The only legitimate government is a Jewish state, and we will not recognize the government of our oppressors. Let's remember that at this time, Judea was an occupied country, and the Jewish people were occupied, often cruelly so, by the oppressive Roman army, and they said, it's bad enough that we have to pay taxes, but to pay it to the Romans, forget it. Other people, well, they hated it, but they grudgingly paid it, but they hated it because it wasn't just the money, but it was the principle of paying out money to your Roman oppressor. If you're interested... There were three different kinds of taxes that were levied upon them in that area of the world at that time. First, there was the ground tax. And that meant 10% of all the grain and 20% of all the, the wine and fruit that went right to the Roman government. Then you had the income tax. That was a whopping 1% of a man's income. And then thirdly, you had the poll tax, and that was paid by men aged 12 to 65 and women aged 14 to 65, and that was a denarius a year, which was about a day's wage for a working man. Again, it wasn't just the issue of the money. This was a deeply felt emotional thing to pay money to your Roman oppressors. So when they come to Jesus and say, shall we pay or shall we not pay? They think, oh, we've got Jesus on the horns of a dilemma now. If he says, pay your taxes, they say, what are you, some Roman lover? You love the Romans and you say we should just bow down before the oppressive boot of the Romans? Don't you think that God is sovereign over Israel and not the Roman government? And all they had to do was play up that response of Jesus and the crowd would turn on him soon. Then on the other hand, they say, well, if Jesus says, don't pay your taxes, then they just go over to Pontius Pilate, the Roman government. Do you hear what this man's saying? He's saying, don't pay your taxes. The Romans didn't like people saying, don't pay your taxes. And so they thought, well, we got Jesus. It's a no-win situation. If he says, pay your taxes, we've got him. If he says, don't pay your taxes, we've got him. You can almost see the smug, self-satisfied smiles on the faces of these religious leaders as they bring to Jesus this, do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they just kind of smile and look at Jesus and go, we got you. This is a no-win situation, Jesus. You're dealing with the big boys now. You know, you can't put Jesus in a no-win situation. It's impossible. He'll always find a way to win. Always. It is absolutely impossible to put him in a no-win situation. So here's Jesus going to win, beginning at verse, the middle of verse 15. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. Now, I like it. Why do you test me? I'm not going to say that Jesus would taunt his adversaries in a bad way or do, as we call it today, trash talk to his opponents. But I wonder if there's not just a little bit of that here in that statement. Why do you test me? I wonder if Jesus didn't say that in the sense of, what, is this the best you got? Bring it on. You think this question is going to trip me up? Bring me a denarius. Now, when they brought that coin to Jesus and put it in his hand, on top of that coin, and we know this because we found these coins from the ancient world, there would be the head of Tiberius Caesar. He was the Roman emperor at that time. And around his head, written in an inscription, is in the pattern of coins, and this would be written in abbreviated form. Obviously, they couldn't fit it all on the coin and spelled out all the way. But in abbreviated form was the phrase, 
Tiberius Caesar, the divine Augustus. And if you went around to the tail side of the coin, there was also a coin. There was also some writing. And on the tail side, it said Pontifus Maximus, which is the Roman title for the high priest of the Roman Empire. And it was saying that Caesar is the high priest of the Roman Empire. And so there Jesus holds that coin in his hand. You know, it's one of, there he is. You just wonder if he's not thinking, you know, at this same hand, Caesar is going to crucify me in a few days. But then he looks at that coin and look at what he says here. Verse 16, so they brought it and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Now you wonder if they almost didn't spit that out when they said it. Caesar's, the one who oppressively rules over, it's his image. We don't like looking at his face. It's Caesar's image. So look at what Jesus says, verse 17. You remember this well, I'm sure. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Jesus looks at the coin and goes, Ah, funny, I don't see your name on it. All I see is Caesar's name. Well, I guess it belongs to him. So render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. You know, essentially, Jesus said, you recognize Caesar's civil authority when you use his coins. Here you are, you're using his coins. So pay him the money that he asks you for. You use his roads. The Romans built brilliant roads. They built beautiful public structures. You use all that. You use the streets. You use the security that the Roman soldiers provide. You use all those things. So pay the taxes. You you don't want to pay Caesar's taxes? Then go out of Caesar's realm. But here it is, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Simply put, friends, if we take advantage of the benefits of governmental rule, we're obliged to submit to government. Now, as long as it doesn't infringe on our service to God, but simply put, and let's not put too fine a point, it's pretty right there in front of us. Jesus says, pay your taxes. If you cheat on your taxes, it's sin. Paul repeats the same idea in Romans chapter 13 where he tells us to submit to the governing authorities and to pay our taxes to whom they're due. I'll say it again. If you cheat on your taxes, you're in sin. Now, if you pay more than you need to, you're kind of stupid. (laughs) So find out what your lowest legitimate tax burden is and pay that. You need to be very careful about this because this is something that's accepted in our society. But it shouldn't be accepted among the people of God. So pay your taxes. But as well, look at the end of verse 17. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. You can't leave out the second part. Just as it is important to render to Caesar, so we must also to render to God the things that are God's. The coin belonged to Caesar. Why? Because his image was stamped upon it. So whose image is stamped upon you? The Bible says that we are all made in the image of God. He stamped his image upon you. So you owe yourself to him. Friends, give the coin to Caesar, but give your life to God. It may be fitting for you to die for your country. There are times where in the cause of freedom and patriotism that it's right and appropriate for brave men to lay down their lives for their country. Friends, though it may be fitting for us to die for our country, it's not fitting for us to live for our country. We live our lives for Jesus Christ. 
Now, Jesus' answer here tells us that Caesar does not have all authority. There are things that should be rendered to Caesar, but there are things that should be rendered to God and to God alone. And when the state treads upon this ground that belongs to God, then we are duty-bound to obey God before the state. If they were to pass a law saying that all Christian preaching should be stopped and no longer could I preach the gospel. Or let's say this. I'll bring it to an issue right here today, politically. If they were to pass a law that says that it's against the law to preach that homosexuality is wrong and that it's a sin, that anybody who does so will be liable to criminal prosecution. Well, friends, when I come to Romans chapter 1, and it talks about the sinful character of homosexuality, I'll preach it as the word says. And if they come and arrest me, they arrest me, which I honestly doubt would happen. But you get the picture. Now, friends, I would hope that I would preach it in the right way, preach it in the way that God says it should be preached, not to single out homosexuals as some special category of notorious sinners that are somehow more under the judgment of God as the the heterosexual who's out there committing sexual sin. Sin is sin. And we're not going to soft sell one sin in one area or soft sell it the other. We all look at God and say, well, Lord, you tell us what sin is and we'll define it from there. We'll take your definition as ours. So you see, this answer of Jesus is full of consummate wisdom. It tells us that, yes, Caesar has his area of rightful authority, and we should render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to God the things that belong to God. You belong to him. So give to Caesar that which is his, but God, give him your life. And look at it there at the very end, verse 17. And they marveled at him. Now, they marveled, but they didn't change. Isn't it interesting? They didn't say, you're right. How foolish we have been. Why, Jesus, you know, we're going to stop all this business trying to trap you and trick you. We're just going to submit to you and become your disciples after all. Nope. They marveled, but they didn't submit. Friends, you may marvel at Jesus, but do you submit to him? You know, I have no question that they marveled at him because they, Jesus gave such an interesting and such a, a wonderful, complete answer. But you have to move from the place of marveling to the place of living for him. We, we don't want to establish here the Jesus Christ Admiration Society. We want to establish a group of people who want to be followers of him. So it's not enough to marvel. The excellent answer of Jesus meant that God was glorified, meant that Caesar was satisfied, meant that the people were edified, and it left his critics stupefied. (laughs) Well, we should marvel. But friends, how about it? By what authority? By what authority do you live your life? Do you recognize that God has the authority to tell you, be a good renter? Pay your taxes. Follow after him. And even when you don't live up to it, because none of us live up to all of God's commands, if you feel you do, that you are without sin and you live up to all of God's commands, please come up and pray for me after service. I need such righteous hands laid upon me in prayer.
We all know that we fall short, but we say when we're wrong, Lord, we're wrong, and you're right, and we submit to your authority. Please forgive us and wash us clean from the, by the blood of Jesus because of what he did on the cross. God's authority not only says what's wrong, but he also makes the provision for our lives to set things right. He invites you to come to him for both things here today. So let's come before him in prayer right now and receive that from him. Lord Jesus, we recognize you as having rightful authority over us. Lord, our sinful nature chafes against that. Our sinful nature just wants to answer to ourself. But Lord, in our right minds, we're happy for your authority. In our right minds, we're happy for it because we know it's loving authority. And we know that anybody who loves us so much, in any command, in any direction he gives, it's birthed only out of love for us. So, Lord, we thank you, and we ask that you help us to see your love and to receive it, to see Jesus dying on the cross and to say that this great love that drove him to the cross is the same love that stands over us in this compassionate authority, and help us to submit to your loving authority. Father, for some here this morning, it might be a first time that they do that. Well, Lord, by your spirit, drive that point home. Help them to follow through and to really love you and to really submit to the loving authority that you bring. Lord, in the same place, touch our hearts and help us to bow before you, to worship you and to honor you and to send us out from this place, God, as people who are ready to impact our world for the sake and the cause of Jesus Christ. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.